Welcome to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. That's remarkable. Yeah, this is for the G's and the geeks, especially the G's who are like Drew. A show for savers, investors, like and entrepreneurs, helping you to stay informed, invest wisely, and achieve the unimaginable. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Gordon Asset Management Podcast. This is your host, Todd Zempel, and today on the podcast, we invited Ira Carnahan. Ira is on the portfolio management team for T. Rowe Price, and we invited him on the podcast today to specifically talk about one of our favorite balance funds, the T. Rowe Price Capital Appreciation Fund. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. Ira, first, I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Clients of the firm, listeners of the podcast, I'm sure they'll appreciate your insight. Uh, If you don't mind, let's start, if you could, just share a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure thing. So so I've been at T. Rowe Price for 15 years now. Um, Most of that time, I was actually uh, an equity investment analyst for the firm uh, covering consumer stocks. But about three years ago, I moved into the current role where I, uh, a little bit more of a kind of a, a spokesman for a number of our portfolio managers. So um, kind of handle uh, uh, kind of communications with some of our larger clients to tell them what we're up to. Um, and I work on several of our strategies, our capital appreciation strategy, our dividend growth strategy, our large cap core uh, strategy, and our what we call U.S. structured research strategy, which is the analyst run fund. So, uh, again, been doing that role for about three years. Um, before I came to T. Rowe Price, I, was, uh, I worked as a financial journalist. So I worked for uh, several years as an associate editor at Forbes magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to that, um, uh, some various jobs in journalism. And, uh, you know, before that, I had uh, done my undergraduate uh, business work at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Very good. Now, I wrote... The main reason we invited you on the podcast today is we wanted to talk about your capital appreciation strategy, which is one of our favorite balance funds, as I mentioned on the opening. Uh, Can you share with our listeners a little bit about that strategy and what it is from a very high level perspective? Sure thing. So so the capital appreciation strategy, there are, I guess, a few key points I I call out about it. Um, First, it's a a multi-asset strategy. So, you know, most of the strategies that we have at T-Row would be stocks or bonds or or whatever asset class. With capital appreciation, on the other hand, we invest across multiple asset classes and have the, you know, the freedom to to, uh, shift our allocations around, basically, depending on where we're seeing the biggest opportunities. Um, So a a typical allocation for us would be maybe 61, 62 percent of the assets in stocks and then the rest in fixed income and cash. Okay, so that multi-asset character is important. Um, you know, a, a second a second thing is what we think of as our investment objectives is, is a little bit different than a lot of strategies. So you look at a lot of a lot of investments out there, and the goal is uh, you know outperform the market or outperform whatever benchmark you have. We're a little different. We have we have three different goals that we're trying to hit in capital appreciation, and uh, we're trying to hit hit all of them. And the first goal, what we think of as our short-term goal, is to, to outperform uh, the stock market on a risk-adjusted basis 
year in and year out. Okay. And in fact, if you look over, uh, over the last 20 years, we've done that uh, 19 of the last 20 years. So that's our what we think of as our short-term goal. Our intermediate-term goal is, we think of the intermediate term as a three-year horizon. And our goal over that horizon is to, at a minimum, not lose our clients' money, even if the market goes down a lot. Okay, so it, we think of that as sort of the, you know, the capital preservation part of our mandate. And, and then the, the final, the long-term goal uh, over a full market cycle is, you know, we want to outperform the stock market and we want to do so with a lot less risk than the stock market. And in fact, if you look over time, you know, we've typically delivered 105, 110% of the, the stock market's return while taking about 70% of the risk. And so that that goal of strong returns with very tightly controlled risk is, is our long-term uh, our long-term goal. So those are the things we're trying to do. We've historically managed to uh, deliver pretty well on them through a combination of, again, the asset allocation I talked about a little bit earlier, but also even more importantly, just the individual security selection. The vast majority of our time we spend on, you know, kind of meeting with companies, digging into them, investigating them to, to pick, you know, the ones that we think are the best bets. And we typically own about 40 companies on the equity side. So we're, we're fairly concentrated. And um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about what we're looking for when we pick stocks, but that's a very kind of big picture view of, of what we do in the strategy. Very good. Yeah, let's go ahead and, and get right into it. So how do you view the world from a securities selection standpoint? So, you know, I, I think, you know, sometimes uh, you, if you step back and look how we're we're sort of categorized by, you know, Morningstar, some of these, uh, you know, kind of other, you know, kind of outside uh, investment um, professionals, we're often viewed as kind of a, what's called GARP, or which stands for growth at a reasonable price. So there, there's a little bit of a, a growth tilt in our portfolio. We're looking for companies that are um, that are growing. Uh, you know, their revenues are growing, their earnings are growing, they're generating a lot of uh, growing free cash flow. So we, we like to see some growth, number one. And, and, but we want to, very importantly, get that growth at a, you know, what we think is a fair price or ideally a significantly undervalued price. So we're, we're, we're growth investors, but value conscious. And, um, uh, you know, so we, we're not going to buy companies that we think might be, you know, very temporarily undervalued, just kind of a trade. You know, we're, we're looking much longer term. We're looking out over, you know, five plus year horizon when we're buying companies. And we want to see ones that, you know, we believe are going to be able to, um, you know, deliver strong returns for, for years to come, ideally. That's, that's kind of what we're seeking. We try to take advantage of uh, various inefficiencies uh, that we see in the market when we're putting the portfolio together. Um, and you know we don't we don't actually disclose all of those inefficiencies that we're trying to take advantage of because you know that's to some degree kind of our, our secret sauce. But I, I can give you give you a couple uh, just to give you a little bit of a feel for for what I mean by that. Um, so um, you know one thing one thing we have found is that the, the stock market generally investors they tend to um, they tend to ignore uh, the the impact of events that are that are possible but aren't very likely. Okay, so to, you know to kind of give you an example, if there's if there's maybe a twenty percent possibility that a company might be you know bought by another company, which is usually you know a very good thing for shareholders, the market generally just doesn't pay much attention to that kind of thing. If it's very likely they're 
going to be bought, the market's going to pay a lot of attention. It'll be priced in. But if it's below maybe a you know one in three chance, the market tends not to to really price that. So if you look at our portfolio, we'll often you know many of the companies we own will have some you know probability, not high, but it's some probability of something really positive happening. And it's kind of free optionality that we're able to get given, again, the market's inefficiency and pricing, you know, things that might happen, but aren't real likely. Um, You know, we've also found we're fixed income investors as well, bond investors. And we found that there are certain areas of the bond market that, again, you know, we think are kind of systematically underpriced. Um, In in particular, um, and again, I don't want to get kind of too deep in the weeds here, but if you look at the different uh, kind of ratings of, of bonds, you know, we have found that um, uh, bonds that are just a little bit below investment grade tend to be uh, kind of undervalued over time. And that's partly because a lot of investors just won't buy bonds that are, uh, you know, below investment grade. It's also because if you look at, you know, specifically at double B rated bonds, they, they tend to have very uneven patterns of returns. So they might they might actually have negative returns three or four years out of five. But over a five-year period, they'll actually be really good because that one or two years that are good will be really, really good. But the average investor is like, you know, that's not something they want. They don't want to have three or four years where they're, you know, maybe having a negative return. We don't care about that. If it's if it's a good return long term, we'll do it. So, you know, to kind of step back, what we're trying to do in our in our in our fund is to take advantage of some of the psychological kind of biases and quirks that many investors have. And uh, again, by taking a long view, we're able to kind of capture some return that a lot of investors, you know, aren't able to for one reason or another. So that would just be again, you know, a couple of examples of some of the again kind of psychological quirks of, of investors that we're trying to take advantage of. Now, when we look at other multi-asset strategies, balanced funds, target date funds, I think there's two camps of people in terms of how they manage fixed income. We have one population that uses the fixed income, the bonds, uh, as a source of alpha or outperformance. So they're sort of shooting for the moon in that bucket. Then we have this other camp of folks that really uh, want that to be the ballast. And so they don't want to take any risks with the fixed income. Where do you guys fall on that spectrum? Right. Um, So I would say that, you know, we are willing to take uh, risk on the fixed income side in in certain senses. Now, uh, I'm going to I'm going to talk to you in a second about the risk that we take. But I want to preface that by saying, you know, we have actually, since David Drew, our, our manager who's been running the fund since uh, 2006, we have never, since he's been running the fund, uh, lost money on a default on any fixed income security. So, you know, I think the, the core starting point is anything we invest in on the fixed income side, we want to have a lot of confidence that, um, you know, we're going to, at a minimum, get our, our money back. And uh, so, again, we've never lost money on a default in over 14 years now. So uh, in that sense, we're very, very conservative. On the other hand, we are willing to um, uh, stray for sure away from, say, just the very, very safest securities, such as, say, treasuries. And in fact, if you were to look at our portfolio right now, we don't own any treasuries. Okay, And in fact, we own uh, very little investment grade corporate debt right now as well. And so, you know, when you talk to the typical person, they might say, well, those are the safest areas of the fixed income market. So, 
you don't know any of those or are you just you know kind of taking wild risks well again that's not the case as i mentioned you know, we've never lost money on a default but we we do we definitely do stray from uh, you know, kind of the, the benchmark holdings in, in treasury, say, or investment grade. And where we're seeing the biggest opportunities right now is in what are called uh, bank loans or, or leverage loans. And, and so these are these are uh, fixed income securities actually aren't fixed. <laughs> so basically, they are adjustable rate securities. These are uh, loans that, uh, you know, banks have made to, uh, you know, various corporations that have adjustable rates. And, and why we find these so attractive right now is that you know we do think there's going to be upward pressure on interest rates over time, and for fixed income, you know, generally that's a bad thing. But with adjustable rate securities, you don't you don't have that vulnerability because again the rates are going to adjust upward, so we're protected um, if, if rates were to go up over time. So again, if you look at our fixed income portfolio right now, uh, the bulk of it is in adjustable rate bank loans. And again, that's something that can shift over time. There have been times where we've had significant treasury holdings. There have been times where we've had significant uh, corporate investment grade. Um, so we're going to, again, be flexible, um, uh, but we won't always be buying you know, the very ultra most safe securities because you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to get much return. At the same time, paying a lot of attention to risk. So Ira, on the bond side, would it be fair to say that a lot of the price appreciation you're looking for is if some of these lower rated bonds get re-rated and upgraded? Is that is that a big component of the return at this point? That can definitely be uh, a significant piece. Um, you know, we bought a lot of debt, uh, high yield debt um, in, in Netflix a couple of years ago. And I think, you know, part of the thesis there, part of the thinking, uh, the rationale for that purchase was you know, look, this is a really large, successful company. Doesn't really make sense that uh, they should be uh, uh, trading sub investment grade. And you know, we think they will get upgraded over time. So that can absolutely be part of the the thinking. You know, at the same time, though, you know, we're looking for um, securities where you know we just have high confidence that you know they're going to be able to pay the the coupons. And you know, if they do, we're going to get a we're going to get a solid return. I'll say just one more thing about how we think about fixed income. You know, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, our three goals in, in running the portfolio. So we've got this you know, kind of short-term one-year horizon, three-year goal, and then a kind of long-term goal. You know, if we were only focused on maximizing, you know, very long-term risk-adjusted returns, it's not clear we would own any fixed income at all, right? Because, you know, over, over long spans of time, you tend to get really, you know, the strongest returns from equities. I mean, that's been the case historically. But what we're trying to do for our investors is not only give them strong long-term returns, but make the ride, you know, between here and there, here in the next 20 years, make that ride not overly bumpy, right? Not make it overly difficult for investors. And in order to do that, we own some fixed income. So the, the role of fixed income, you know, very big picture in capital appreciation is to to add kind of ballast, to add stability to our returns, to to smooth out some of the ups and downs you're going to have on the on the stock side, and and so we always have that in mind when we're thinking about you know what we want to own uh, in fixed income. So switching gears, uh, I'm curious. Uh, I'm looking at Morningstar data. I think it's only through February 28th from a equity side. You you look like you're about three times overweight the category in utilities, and you do have a larger overweight to financials. Do you want to comment on those two sectors? 
Sure thing. Sure thing. So, you know, in, first of all, adjusting our weights across the different sectors is, is another way that over time we've been able to, um, you know, generate some alpha, add some additional return for investors. So it is something we, we give a lot of thought to. And in utilities in particular is our you know, favorite sector right now. Um, and, uh, you know, financials has been our, our second favorite. Um, so first to take utilities, I think, you know, we, we look at the utility space as one where um, you know, there are really a lot of, uh, you know, we kind of think investor misconceptions around utilities these days. So, you know, if you look, if you look historically, um, the return to uh, investors in utilities has basically come just from the dividend yield, okay, of the, uh, of the stocks. And you know, there hasn't really been any growth to speak of, earnings growth. It's just been, you know, historically dividend yield. More recently, that has changed. You've got a lot of utilities out there that now are, are kind of growing, may, able to make a lot of investments, are really growing earnings significantly. And, and so I think, again, a lot of investors may think of utilities as old, you know, kind of boring. You just get the dividend. But today you've got significant earnings growth as well. So we've got a, you know, a basket of utilities in the portfolio that we think can grow earnings per share, um, five, six, seven percent a year for long spans of time. At the same time, have dividend yields of three percent or so. So you're getting, you know, something like a, a nine, ten, eleven percent total return uh, from these utilities. You know, again, we think over several years. You combine that strong return with the, you know, the real steadiness of the utility industry, and, and you combine that further with, you know, all the trend we see today toward renewables and alternatives uh, on, on the uh, electricity front that, you know, are going to be real boon for a lot of utilities. Um, and and we, we just see a very attractive um, kind of low risk area to invest in. And it's also one that has, has frankly been left behind over the last year plus where, you know, investors have been, um, you know, kind of focused on other kind of sexier areas. And, uh, you know, so I think the, the valuations are attractive too. Over time, what we've noticed recently is that I was going to say today, an announcement today, we saw Nextera and Duke Energy, along with Wells Fargo, are going into some big solar joint venture. But it seems like uh, Nextera has been like a poster child for what you just said. And, and because they've been growing a lot in renewables and they happen to be in Florida where everyone's moving, especially from New York. Uh, but they've been trading north of 30 times earnings. I was wondering just what, at what point does a multiple for a utility, no matter how uh, growthy they are and are trying to be, you know, does, the, does it, that reasonable price aspect of buying growth become, uh, you know, a non-starter? Yeah, no, and I think that's a really good point. So Nextera, as you said, has been kind of the, the poster child for the, you know, kind of growth alternatives exposed utility and you know really a big investor favorite and, and so yeah i think when we start seeing multiples like that you know you gotta you gotta look really hard even if you like what the company is doing a great deal but there, there are a lot of other utilities out there that aren't you know kind of quite as kind of hot right now that that still offer a lot of those same characteristics but yeah no everything everything's got a price and i think your your points uh, you know very well taken on on nextera um but, you know, again, there, there are a lot of them out there, and it's an area that, um, you know, again, we see as, as, as relatively low risk, you know, particularly if you're paying a lower multiple. You know, on, on the financials, that's, you know, another area that we've been overweight. 
You know, first of all, uh, you know, we have actually not been uh, significantly overweight financials prior to recently. Uh, you know, you have to go all the way back to the great financial crisis in 0809 when we last had a, you know, a significant overweight there. Uh, when, you know, there was a lot of dislocation. Uh, we, we, we did build up a significant overweight, uh, you know, this past summer. And, and uh, you know, the idea basically was that some of the big financials, some of the, you know, kind of big traditional banks had um, you know, really lagged a lot. The stocks had really lagged. And yet the companies themselves, we felt like were, were really in a position where things were likely to get a lot better for them. Uh, you know, investors were likely to get more enthusiastic. And, and there were several things you know, we, we, we thought could happen and, and are happening. Um, you know, first, you look at a lot of these big banks, they had made you know, huge, taken huge kind of provisions or, or made allowances for large credit losses as a result of kind of exposures due to COVID. You know, and, and our analysts felt like, you know, the the reserves they had taken were much larger than they were really going to need. And um, so, you know, we thought that would be a source of some earnings uh, surprise. And, and that, I think, is turning out to be the case. You know, we also looked at a lot of the big banks and felt like you know, they've been under really strict regulatory scrutiny, not allowed to buy back shares in many cases or um, kind of grow their dividends. You know, again, the view was that that was going to that kind of restrictions were going to ease up. Again, we're you know starting to see that. That's been very helpful. And we also felt like interest rates, again, kind of looking back to where they were, um, you know, a few quarters ago, that there was likely to be some upward pressure there, and that would be a real tailwind uh, for the big banks, uh, you know, if interest rates went up. And again, we've seen a little bit of that. So again, just kind of a sector that was out of favor, hadn't done well for a good while, but uh, the possibility of a lot of good things happening. And again, I think we've seen some of that develop. So that that's kind of been the broad thinking. Uh, with our investment in financials. Now, Ira, in 2020, you guys entered the year with a significant underweight to equities, which midpoint through the year, you transferred that into a significant overweight into equities. Um, what was the deal with that? Did you guys have a crystal ball? Did you see this COVID crisis coming? What was that process? Okay. Well, first of all, no, no crystal ball, alas. Uh, <laughs> we're always looking, but uh, no, did not have a crystal ball there. We did not, we did not see COVID coming. Um, you know, we're certainly following it all. You know, as the news developed, but um, you know, we were, um, you know, we were surprised, like you know, everyone else, it, it kind of how how dramatically that became a you know a, a huge problem and how, how quickly. Um, but. What we had, you know, as you mentioned, we were actually very conservatively positioned going into COVID, and and that wasn't, an, you know, an accident or luck. You know, that was that was based on our assessment that the market at that point was just was pretty fully valued. It was tough to find um, really attractive investments, and you know, when you're in that kind of situation, you know, you just got a lot more, you know, downside than upside potentially. So we were. Um, again, as a result of just feeling like you know everything was pretty fully valued, hard to see anything really positive happening near term. As a result of that thinking, we were conservatively positioned. So, as it happened, you know when COVID came along, we were we were able to you know withstand that relatively well compared to a lot of investors. Fast forward a little bit, COVID develops, the market goes into free fall, you know drops thirty five percent from kind of where it had peaked, um, you know. We, we reversed course uh, as that happened and tried to take advantage of, of all the, you know, frankly, kind of the fear that was out there. And um, so we, uh, 
you know, we definitely uh, invested uh, aggressively, um, took a lot of, uh, you know, took, took a lot of money from cash, uh, which had, you know, peaked at around 20% of the portfolio, took that down to about 2% and then put all that money into, put all that money into, um, in, into stocks. And so that was, uh, you know, a really important uh, a factor in, you know, how we're able to deliver, um, you know, good performance during the year. So I, I think, you know, if at the end of the day, you know, as investors, you have to be willing to, um, to, to step into some uncertainty. And, you know, we did that with the case of COVID, you know, we, we invested a lot of money in stocks when everyone was, you know, very fearful. We certainly didn't do it blindly. We did um, just countless calls and consultations with, with health experts um, with disease experts and so forth, uh, to, to get a sense of how COVID might play out and, and very importantly, how the vaccine development might play out. We came away from all that with a lot of confidence that you know, vaccine development was going to proceed a lot faster in this case than it had historically. Uh, and, and again, that was important in giving us you know, kind of the conviction to step in. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was a, an important decision we made. And you know, if you think then kind of, kind of what's happened since, well, the market has obviously, you know, kind of exploded upward in, in the last few quarters. And what we've done in response is kind of gradually, uh, you know, kind of let up on the, uh, uh, the equity exposure. So we went from being way overexposed versus our neutral inequities to now we're, you know, kind of typical exposure. So, um, you know, as, as prices have gone up, basically, we've gotten a little bit more conservative. Thanks for sharing that. And obviously, anybody can go look up the historical performance uh, and just see what a good job you guys have done relative to uh, the benchmark and as well as other balance funds out there. Um, but now to, to switch gears, we are in this very interesting environment right now, you know, coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, unprecedented levels of monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, potential for infrastructure, all these things. We expanded the monetary supply by over 25%, um, but really you know, we're not seeing as much inflation as what a lot of people uh, have been calling for. Now, does T. Rowe Price have a company stance on what you're expecting with inflation? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's um, interesting, and I, I think a strength of T. Rowe is that we don't have, you know, house views on uh, whether it be on, you know, kind of macroeconomics or the market or, or you know, sectors and so forth. We um, we have a lot of folks who are, you know, very smart, very knowledgeable about their different areas. They share their ideas, but, you know, we don't force everyone to kind of reach, uh, you know, agreement uh, on any of these issues. Um, and so so we, we don't have a house view, I, I wouldn't say, on inflation. Um, I think if I, if I look at David's view, David Drew, who, you know, manages capital appreciation, I think we think, you know, we, we felt like for, you know, a long time there have been, you know, some strong deflationary pressures, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with the broad kind of global economy and all the trade with China, all the, you know, kind of standard kind of reasons you, you hear out there that have, been, that have been restraining inflation for, you know, a long time. And so we, we've seen obviously very little of it for a long time. You know, as you said, though, there's been, you know, a, a ton of stimulus, uh, you know, kind of on the on the monetary side, and now on the fiscal kind of spending side, and you know, kind of in the pipeline. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we would agree that, um, you know, that's going to tend to, uh, you know, kind of encourage some inflation. The tough question is how much, 
and, you know, and kind of win. And, uh, you know, on that, again, I think, you know, the market generally has, has been very kind of unconcerned with inflation. You hear a little, you certainly hear a little bit more about it now. But you know, if we think back over the past few quarters, there's been very little concern at all. And, you know, I think we we felt like there was uh, there has been some risk of inflation increasing and that, uh, you know, folks were generally kind of underappreciating that risk. So, again, you kind of come back to our fixed income allocation, the focus on adjustable rate securities. Part of that is, you know, again, around concerns, uh, you know, that we might see a little bit of inflation. And I, I think, you know, t- at this point today, um, it, it's kind of TBD. You know, we will see. Um, you know, I don't think anyone has a great record predicting what, what's happening with uh, macro variables like inflation. Um, but we are we, we do recognize the possibility that there could be some and kind of positioned accordingly. The great bulk of our focus, though, just kind of day to day, hour to hour is really on, you know, analyzing individual securities that we're thinking about buying or that we already own. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's by doing that. It's, that's where we think we have the biggest competitive advantage is understanding the companies better as opposed to trying to call you know some of these big macro variables. It'd be great if we had a crystal ball on those, but the reality is that's uh, it's really tough to have an edge on that. So we want to make sure we're not going to um, you know get burned if if there is some inflation, but you know we're not we're not kind of positioning the portfolio with a, a you know really precise you know expectation of what might happen there. So capital appreciation, this fund that we like so much, this balanced fund, how should investors view this fund? Is it a one-stop shop type investment? Should investors use it for a core satellite asset allocation? From T. Rowe's perspective, how should investors use this fund? So, you know, I think we we have investors who take both approaches. Um, I, I could tell you that, <laughs> you know, I, I'm someone who's, uh, you know, been involved with capital appreciation, you know, for, for many years. Uh, and I actually, um, the approach I've taken is I have all of my money that's not in T-Row price stock is in capital appreciation. Uh, nothing else. My parents are retired. 100% of their money is in capital appreciation. So I, I think, you know, and if you talk to a lot of folks at T-Row on investment staff, you know, a lot of them own capital appreciation in a really big way. Um, and so I, I think it absolutely can function as as a one stop piece because you you've got the uh, exposure across a, you know a bunch of different asset classes, the focus on risk control. Um, so I, I think it I think it's very well suited to that. Um, at the same time, you know some other folks will choose to uh, make it maybe you know kind of the core of their portfolio, but then have um, some more specialized funds to supplement that. And you know I think that's that's fine as well. But it, it's absolutely intended to be. Uh, you know, one-stop solution if if investors want to use it that way. That's an inter- interesting uh, comment you just made because um, many of our 401k uh, participants, especially highly compensated uh, owners of firms that have generally, you know, large account balances, uh, maybe approaching a million or north of a million, is uh, that we've we've kind of had them in a core satellite type of allocation. Uh, for most of the last three to four years, with the core being your fund uh, in question, and then maybe seeking a little alpha around the edges. But uh, that's good to hear that you got all your money in the fund, and and uh, uh, except for the T Rose stock, which hadn't been a bad uh, place to be either. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you think about it, like uh, this is a little bit of a tangent here, but 
you know, if you work in the investment business or kind of financial services generally, you can think of your you can think of your your salary your or your comp is is it's kind of like a stock, right? Because it is, you know, in T row at least we're compensated substantially in stock, and then frankly, you know, how the firm does depends a lot on what happens with the stock market. So you wanna you wanna have a little bit of diversification in your other holdings, um, so that you're not you know kind of so levered to the stock market. And so a strategy like capital appreciation really, you know, kind of fits that well. And um, so, I, you know, the way I think, you know, if, if you can use capital appreciation, again, as your sole thing is, you know, have, uh, you, know, you know, most of your money in capital appreciation and to the extent you find that having all in it would be a little bit too risky for, you know, someone's taste, then they could just hold some cash, frankly. Um, and, but anyway, you know, again, different people take different approaches, but it, it's certainly... Um, you know, we think, uh, again, if you were to look at the investment staff, all the different, you know, fund managers, analysts at T. Rowe, an awful large percentage of them have a significant amount of money in capital appreciation. You know, we think it really is a uniquely attractive uh, product. Well, so that's great to hear. Now, again, this fund is got it speaks for itself. It's performance and, and everything you've described today. Uh, but it's been hard closed since 2014. So what do you say to other people you know? Friends, investors, uh, where where can I put my money since your your flagship uh, appreciation fund is closed? Right. No, that's a <laughs> that's an unfortunate thing. You know, one of the one of the kind of key management principles at, at T Rowe Price is that you know we 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 shut funds to new investors relatively quickly because we don't want you know the the amount of assets to grow to a level that it's going to you know kind of compromise performance for the investors who are already in the strategy so you know as you mentioned we um we closed capital appreciation back in uh in 2014 so that that isn't uh, an option for most new investors um you know we have uh certainly a lot of other strategies at t-row that are that are that are great um you know uh, uh, you know a few that i would uh you know, kind of call out right off the top of my head. Um, we have uh, a strategy called New America Growth. Uh, actually, it's just just being renamed right now. And I, I don't know the name off the top of my head. I apologize. Uh, but it's run by Justin White, uh, you know, very strong kind of multi-cap uh, growth strategy that's had uh, great results. Um, we have, uh, you know, a, a very strong global stock fund that I think, uh, you know, a lot of our folks internally own as well. Uh, managed by uh, David Eiswert, I think is uh, you know a really a really great choice, superb uh, record, and I know a fair number of people again internally at T Row who own capital appreciation and global stock. Um, you know we have uh, great mid cap funds. Uh, actually, you know uh, unfortunately both closed right now. We have some small cap funds that are that are still open. Um, our uh, small cap strategy, our small cap value strategy. And again, we have several, you know, great large cap strategies. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, kind of just list off a whole bunch. But I, I think, you know, we have, uh, at the end of the day, what's underlying all of these strategies, whether it be capital appreciation or some of these others I mentioned, it's, it's our, um, it's our research platform. And again, that's our, our kind of number one competitive advantage. So they're all kind of working on behalf of these, of these strategies. Just, just one more I'll mention, just because it, it kind of fits the, the profile of, of. Uh, capital appreciation in some ways in terms of 
um, kind of lower risk, but focus on companies that are growing would be our dividend growth strategy managed by Tom Huber. Um, had a, you know, Tom's been managing it for 20 plus years, has outperformed the S&P by an average, you know, two percentage points a year over that period. And again, a much lower risk strategy than say an S&P 500 index, uh, because, you know, it's focused on companies that pay dividends. Um, so those tend to be more established, less, uh, less risky. So that, that'd be another one I'd, I'd definitely highlight. Well, Ira, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. If anybody would like more information about T-Row Price or any of the funds we talked about, you can visit T-Row's website at trowprice.com or feel free to reach out to our firm, Gordon Asset Management, at wealthqb.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great day. My raps are raw, I dribble like a basketball, slobber on myself, but that's not all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to click subscribe. Gordon Asset Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit wealthqb.com. The information in this podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only and subject to change without notice. Opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect those of Gordon Asset Management, LLC. It's producers, hosts, or guests. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risks. Neither Gordon Asset Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall not be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast. But I'll wrap some raw.